It's time for Security Now. We've got questions. We've got answers. We've got Steve Gibson. And we're going to begin the show with a debate over net neutrality with an Internet service provider from beautiful Laramie, Wyoming. Brett Glass joins us next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 457, recorded May 27th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 188. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that... <laughs> it sounds like I'm doing a wrestling intro here. You know, your, your wind-up gets bigger security every week. Now. <laughs> the show that covers security now and privacy and online stuff, and that's the guy who does it all. I'm just here to, you know, I'm the I'm the ringleader. No, he's the ringleader. I'm the sidekick. He does the uh, work. I'm just Leo, here you're, to You're the reason moderate. that I get dragged into this every week in order well, to I'm do the Well, I'm proud part. to say that I dragged Steve you're the here. Reason, you're the reason this exists. <laughs> Uh, we have a good show, really good show uh, planned for you. Um, it, this is uh, every week we talk about uh, security, and then every other week we give you a chance to uh, ask questions. We've got a bunch of questions and answers for you. And a guest. Yeah. Um, you and I have known Brett for decades. Ages. Uh, Ages. Yeah. Uh, so he, I would call him a, an industry veteran of the PC business. Uh, he's also an ISP See, that I didn't Wyoming. know, because I know him, you know, of course, by his byline. Right, and I think that's where he went. Well, it, we'll you know, we'll, we'll let him speak for himself uh, after we get him on, on in, in the podcast. All right. Um, but he contacted me because um, his sense is that he hasn't yet seen anyone explain net neutrality correctly. And, and he said, I would, I would love to have the chance to do that and i said well i happen to have a podcast so we can make that happen <laughs> well and a perfect guy to do it because uh he's the one of the fair i think maybe even the very first wireless internet service provider he has a wisp in laramie wyoming a wisp yep. and a lisp he has a lisp in laramie wyoming and uh and he also uh but i mean he's been he's been around covering this scene since the very very beginning well, yeah, and like us, Leo, he was around before the internet, right. so he's lived through the dawn of all of this and watched the PC industry evolve. So, you know, he's one of our old timers, not quite the Jerry Pornell old timer, but you know, he's well, what, he's our our peer in terms of his his experience and background in the industry. So, right. I'm interested to, to hear his take. So, we're going to talk to Brett. Uh, we're going to learn about uh, this week a nifty XP hack that allows you to continue receiving security updates just like it uh -oh. never got 
cut off up oh. until 2019, which gives us another five years. That's awfully handy. Um, I'd love to know about we'll, that. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about uh, eBay's uh, acknowledged fumble from late February, early March, where they lost mm. control of their user database. Mm-hmm. A couple of Apple security woes. Uh, a brief update on where I am with Squirrel. And then this is nominally a Q&A episode. So we'll fill the balance of the podcast with as many questions as we can get to. <laughs> it's a jam-packed show today. <laughs> we'll, we'll get Brett on right up at the top. We'll do. We'll start with Brett in just a second. Before we do, though, I want to talk a little bit about backing up your stuff. If you've got a computer, you've got stuff on the computer that is no doubt valuable. Baby pictures, wedding pictures, financial records, your great American novel. And uh, the key to backing it up, frankly, uh, is getting it backed up away from the computer, off-site. Now, if you could do that automatically and uh, continuously whenever you're connected, that would be even better. And if you could do it affordably, as little as 5 bucks a month for everything on a computer, well, then you're talking carbonite. That's, that's pretty clear. Carbonite is great for small businesses, but for individuals as well. That's right, $59.99 a year for everything on a Mac or a PC. They also have great server plans, pro plans, small business plans, all flat rate, no matter how much data you have. Carbonite has backed up 300 billion files to date and restored 20 billion, which tells you something. I'm not sure... (laughs) Well, it tells you there's there's a lot of people with a lot of files that would be gone if it weren't for Carbonite. 50,000 small businesses use Carbonite, and we invite you to try it free for two weeks. Visit Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now. You'll get two weeks free, and if you do use that offer code, no credit card needed, just the offer code, you'll get two bonus months when you decide to buy. you got to back it up to get it back. Do it right with Carbonite, automatic, continuous, off-site backup to the Carbonite cloud, where you can access your data anytime. You just log into your Carbonite account or use their free apps, and there's your stuff. So it's kind of peace of mind. Carbonite. Use the offer code SECURITY now and try it today. Leo Laporte, Steve Gibson, and lo and behold, through the magic of the Internet, Brett Glass <laughs> is, uh, is here. Hey, Brett. Hey, Leo. Welcome. Good to have you. Yes, it is great to be here. I've admired your show for quite some time. It's wonderful to be on. Well, of course, we've been just, reading, just, reading just, you in PC Mag for years, but he I, he's also an internet service provider. Go ahead, you you do the introduction. Well, you do the honor. And it's funny because you know, as I was saying, Brett's been around for a long time and understands the way all of this works. Our listeners will appreciate that he was when we were arranging this. He said, "Well, you know, how how do we connect and and all that?" And I said, "Well, we use Skype because." It's the best solution we found. And he said, oh, there's like a super node problem with Skype, isn't there? And and I had, I mean, I sort of... Not anymore. Microsoft remember, eliminated the, eliminated the uh, super nodes when they bought them. Right. It, it turns out that I was Googling to make sure that that had gone away. And it was our podcast, episode 100-something, where I was explaining about super nodes. And there was a, a something you could do, a configuration switch yeah. that would prohibit your Skype client from being a super node. But anyway, when I got email from Brett, we were we were arranging to to connect before the podcast to make sure that everything was was working. And he said, when I fired up Skype, it started making port 80 and 443 connections all over the world. Oh, that's nice. So I've blocked it and given it a single port. So my but my But that was the hack. That was what we always did was we said use a dedicated port. Yes. 
Yes, and then Skype wouldn't do the super note thing. Right. But who knows what Microsoft has done? My point is that you know Brett is savvy enough at the technical end to be a little skeptical and leery of you know some some random conferencing software. And sure enough, he caught the you know the client wanting to go off and do go Lord knows what. So anyway, that's been neutered. Well, and, thank you. Uh, and we have we have Brett direct from from Laramie. Great to see you, Brett. Thanks for joining us. Yes, well, again, it's good to be here. Should I introduce myself, talk about my background? I'm just sorry we made you use Skype. I feel guilty now. (laughs) Oh, Um, I now now know how to to neuter Skype. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) So my my sense is that you sort of have a pro-net neutrality stance, and I want to understand what that is. Or how would you characterize your your feelings about this issue and the the confusion that people have about net neutrality? Yeah, but do set us up, Brett. Tell us a little bit about why we should listen to you. Okay, well... um I, after I was a columnist for InfoWorld for many years, as a matter of fact, while I was still a columnist for InfoWorld, PC World, I also did some work for PC Magazine, um, I moved to Laramie, Wyoming and discovered that there really was no fast internet here. The best you could do is CompuServe at 2400 baud. Yeah. Um, not finding this acceptable, I decided that we needed to do something about this, and other people in town were thinking the same thing. So uh, I went ahead and set up uh, what turned out to be the world's first WISP, or wireless ISP. We bought radio equipment, which had just come onto the market. Lucent was making them. I'd seen, it, I'd, I'd seen the boards at Comdex. We put them together into a wireless network. We connected a lot of businesses and individuals in town who uh, who wanted to be on the Internet and have high speed. And uh, there we were, the world's first WISP. That's pretty and darn cool. You, I love that. You were, met, you, were messing, you, you were me- messing around with, with Yagi antennas and, wow. like, you know, beaming the stuff from, like, like one water tower to the next, like, <laughs> across across the state, right? Um, we don't quite cover the whole state, but we do cover the uh, southeastern corner of the state. Um, we do use these long, carrying bone-shaped Yagi antennas. Um, we now use smaller ones. I have one here. As a matter of fact, is a little panel that we use now. This is almost looks like a cell, a cell antenna, almost. Yeah. yeah, but it has a lot more gain than the uh, antenna inside your cell phone. It's a lot more focused. And is it, what that does is it microwave? Is it what, you, what frequencies do you use? Um, we use all of the unlicensed frequencies that the FCC provides. Um, unfortunately, there aren't all enough of them. Of them. <laughs> yes. We use 5 gigahertz. We use 2.4 gigahertz, which is the original Wi-Fi frequency. We use 900 megahertz, which is even older and was uh, was the first one that we used way back cordless, when. It's now cordless used. phones, right? Or- Yes, cordless phones, power meters, all sorts of different devices use uh, 900 megahertz. And uh, now the FCC just about uh, two weeks ago um, freed up some spectrum at 3.65 gigahertz, and so we're going to be using that as well. So we use anything that we can get our hands on without having to pay billions of dollars in licensing fees. Like Verizon. And and where do you get – how do you get your bandwidth piped into your central location? 
that's an interesting story too. Um, originally, we uh, we had to get it from the telephone company. The telephone company priced it such that uh, its wholesale prices to us were as high as their retail prices when they provided DSL, <laughs> and we had to find ways of trying to make money anyway, wow. despite the fact that they were uh, they were raising our costs. Ultimately, we managed to tap into fiber, which is running across the state of Wyoming, and bypass the telephone company, and now we're able to offer much more speed at, at lower prices. Nice. And by the way, we connect to that fiber using big microwave dishes on the top of uh, on the tops of two buildings, one in downtown Laramie and one way out in the countryside where the fiber is, and that's how we connect the two of them together. So we have to be creative. Uh, being being a small company, we don't have the advantages of of, of a very large telephone company. Right. We, so so we have to invent our way around uh, the barriers. So okay. uh, let's talk net neutrality. Now, I think that you've you've qualified yourself pretty well. You're an, you're somebody who's providing internet service to. How many customers do you have in Lariat? We have about I mean, a Lariat. thousand accounts. Um, so now that's a thousand people the- relying on you for access to the public internet. Actually, it's more than a thousand people because behind each account can be hundreds of users. Ah. And we serve an apartment building. That's one account, but everyone in the apartment building is using it. So we don't actually know how many users we have, but we do know how many bills we send out each month. How, how much bandwidth does this conglomeration consume? Uh, right now we have uh, about one and a quarter gigabits of bandwidth coming in through our microwave links. Nice. Okay, and, so uh, net neutrality. Okay. Well, the first thing to understand about net neutrality is that it's not a well-defined term. When you hear people talk about network neutrality, though, there's one thing you can be sure of, and that is what they're talking about is regulating the Internet and regulating ISPs like me out of the fear that we're somehow going to do something bad to their communications or overcharge them or try try to do something which is uh, something nasty. And so whenever you hear the term net neutrality, um, in general, what it entails is regulating ISPs under the assumption that we're going to do something bad for consumers. By the way, I should point out, I don't think anybody is worried about you, Brett, but uh, the big monopoly (laughs) ISPs like Comcast – Maybe a little bit more likely to do some of this stuff. Well, so, and so I, I guess it's the ISPs control over the so-called last mile right. that makes people nervous because they're they're the final connector between the internet and the end user, the the retail bandwidth purchaser, the consumer. Exactly, and people people are worried that the ISP will mess with their connection, that they'll spy on it, um, that they'll restrict it, that they'll hold anything that they can for ransom financially, and uh, that's usually when, when you when you hear people campaigning for net, network neutrality, that's what they what what they're concerned about, and that's what they that, that's what they say. And in fact, though. Um, ISPs have never done that. If you take a look, for example, they talk about censors. They, they, they say that they're worried that ISPs have, will censor. In fact, there's never been an example of any ISP ever censoring legal third-party content. Um, but this, uh, you know, this idea that they might is enough to get people concerned enough to call for regulation of the net, even even though this might have some negative I might effects. disagree with you on that, uh, uh, Brett. You've, you've heard of Sandvine. Uh, indeed, I have. Yeah, it's of course deep packet inspection tool that a lot of ISPs use, and Rogers used quite famously in Canada to cut off Skype calls after an hour. So that's yeah, an example, and that's yeah, anti-competitive because, of course, Rogers is a telephone company as well as an ISP. 
Yeah, well, there have been a couple of incidents where uh, where um, so certain ISPs have acted in anti-competitive ways and stopped very quickly because the consumers threatened thre threatened to dump. Well, them. I'm just arguing your point that nobody's ever had an example of this. There are ample examples, and there are many that are hidden, covert examples that we don't know about because we don't know what people are doing with their sand vine boxes and the like. Well, yeah, and and my I guess my problem is a lack of choice. I, you know, the, I think the argument is, well, if consumers don't like the service they're getting from their their bandwidth provider, they can go somewhere else. Well, I mean, I've researched every alternative there is. And, you know, I, for example, we don't have AT&T U-verse uh, service. There's no fiber near me. Um, I'm too far away for DSL. You know, I'm still using a pair of T1s to get you know, reliable bandwidth to my house. But other than that, it's Cox, you know, it's Cox cable. And, and that's the case for typically like all the people here. So I guess I'm, I'm sensitive to the notion that they, the, the, these major providers who are continuing to buy each other also are, really are eliminating choice from the market because they want more power. Also, I, I point this out, there's other kinds of issues such as uh, the interconnect issue. And, of course, we've seen Level 3 talk about how companies like Comcast, in fact, five of the big broadband providers in the U.S., not you, obviously, Brett, uh, use uh, congested ports and, and, and refuse to upgrade those until they receive payments. Now, that's not net neutrality, I understand. That's not to the, that's not to the edge providers uh, necessarily or to the, to the home, but it, is, it reflects on what I consider their bad will. I don't feel that these big companies, and again, I don't include you in this, um, have shown any goodwill towards consumers. But go well, ahead. And, we just, I just wanted and, to and, raise that uh, point before, yeah, before you continue on. So you may, I don't want to interrupt you too much. And, 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 and if, I, if I could throw one more thing in, because we were just talking about this a couple of weeks ago, the, the issue with Netflix, for example, and which, which is I think where most people focus is the idea that that the ISP wants money from Netflix because they feel that Netflix is gaining an unfair advantage and profiting from their sort of common carrier, uh, not you know, currently neutral handling of bandwidth regardless of its source. Uh, okay, you, you've raised a lot of concerns. You have a lot of topics all at once. I'll try to try to address them one at a time and talk a little bit about uh, not only from my point of view but the consumer's point of view because I'm an advocate for my customer about what this all means. Um, yes, you are correct that uh, in some cases you've seen some attempts at anti-competitive actions on the part of ISPs. Um, the first, the, the the most prominent example being a uh, a phone company called Madison River, which blocked VoIP. Over their uh, um, over their network, and they only did this for about a month, though, because the outcry from consumers was was so great that they stopped. Um, again, whenever you've seen an attempt at an anti-competitive strategy, it's it's been very short-lived. And you, one thing again that, it, that you've never seen, and this I think this is a key point, you've never seen censorship. At most, what you've seen is attempt attempts to advantage a service which the broadband provider uh, provided that was in competition with a third-party service that rode over the top over the internet. Um, the good news is that uh, the, the, these attempts to, to do such things have, have always historically lasted a very short time 
and even without action on the part of the government, have gone away very quickly as the consumers have threatened to raise a ruckus and threatened to switch. Now, as, as, for the, you know, as, as to the point of competition, you're right. There should be more competition. But the worst way to discourage competition is to regulate in a very, very heavy-handed way. Some of the regulations which have been proposed as a part of net neutrality um, would actually put companies, small companies like mine, which are competitive. We, we compete with the cable company and the telephone company out of business because we couldn't handle the burden of the regulations. And then you would have less competition rather than more, and there would be more of a temptation for a uh, for, for a large company to misbehave because they'd realize that there well there's no place that you could turn to. Um, right now, I, I, when I started my WISP back in 1992, as far as I know, I was the world's first. There are now 3,000 of us all over the country, and that's quite a lot if you think about it. And quite a large number per state. Not everyone has access to one, but something like 80 to 90 percent of the U.S. population has access to a WISP right now. Um, if we want that to grow. If we want there to be still more competitive providers, we want to be very careful about how we regulate because if the regulations make it tough to start up a new business, if it makes it tough to make a profit, then you're going to have fewer and fewer and only the large companies that have other sources of revenue like the uh, cable companies which, uh, which provide you with TV are going to be able to uh, survive. Now, you also talked about Netflix and that's an interesting situation for, for our ISP in particular. Our bandwidth is very expensive, and because we use wireless, uh, the amount of spectrum that we have available to us is very limited. And uh, so people watching Netflix, and believe me, this is the first thing that they ask us about whenever they call and they ask for service. They say, can I receive Netflix? Can I stream Netflix in HD? Very first question. They, won't, they will not subscribe to your ISP if you can't provide that. Um, right away, they want to be able to do that. And so it's something which you must do as an ISP. Um, Netflix has the market power here. If Netflix were to refuse to serve our customers or um, somehow disadvantage our ISP, they could do bad things to us. They could basically deprive us of a lot of our customers, not the other way around. We don't have a choice. We must carry Netflix. We must make sure that the quality is good. Um, they have a choice. They can they can afford to either serve us well or not. And in fact, why, why Netflix, wouldn't they serve uh, yeah. you well? I mean, that's saying we don't want your the customer's business. Well, here's here's what's going on. Um, Netflix recently went to Comcast, a very large ISP, and they agreed to pay them money to connect directly into their network instead of going through a, contract, a content distribution network like Level 3 or Akamai. Go directly into their network to provide uh, higher quality service to their customers. And they actually paid uh, Comcast money to, to, to build this, out, uh, this facility and so it could happen. And so Comcast customers are getting a special deal from Netflix. Well, I went and I called up Netflix and I said, okay, well, I've got an ISP too. Will you do the same thing for me? And they said, oh, no. We're not going to do anything like that. You are going to have to pay thousands of dollars per month to run a special connection to us and then host one of our servers in your facility, you know, which is something that ISPs normally charge for. Um, and then maybe we will do the same thing for you that we do for Comcast. So are, they other, didn't deny yeah. you uh, access to their Open Connect. Uh, well, that's what Open Connect is. They, they said they that you have Open to connect, connect yes. to Open Connect. 
But they said that I would have to pay that I would have to shell out money to do it to Netflix. Um, to um, either um, not to Netflix, but I would have to pay for all of the facilities, and Netflix wouldn't pay me anything. Whereas Netflix is paying Comcast. So you see, when you're a little guy, and um, you're saying you can't pass that along to your customers because they wouldn't accept it. That's right. And so it uh, seems you know, to me the so problem is that your customers are, are saying we're not going to pay for the service we want. Well, the customer ultimately pays for. The, cu the customer ultimately pays for everything anyway. All of, the, all of the costs wind up coming back to the customer. The question is, of what's left, who gets to keep which part? And this is what's going on, really going on with Netflix. Netflix, and also to a certain extent, Google and Amazon and all of the other large content providers, um, have set themselves up in a tug of war with ISPs over who is going to get uh, what share of the total amount of money that the customer is shelling out for their internet connection and for the content. Now, if we want to be fair about this, if you, if you think about this in terms of fairness, um, basically people should pay in proportion to the resources that they use. Ultimately, the, the, the customer, you know, the, the, the internet customer who is streaming 24 hours a day should pay more for that than yeah. the one who just and uses the web and email. I think we can all agree to that. We can all agree on that. That's not the issue, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most people would also like their monthly bills to be predictable and fixed. People hate caps. They hate overage charges. They hate right. surprises. They really want to pay a fixed amount per month for everything, whether it's their ISP bill or their bill to Netflix or whoever. And so how can you make both of those things happen at the same time? Well, just simple arithmetic, you, you don't know which ISP customer is going to be the heavy streamer and which isn't. And so one, of, one good mechanism by which this could be done is what's called a two-sided market. Um, this is something where there's been a lot of fuss about. You'll hear a lot, you'll hear a lot of talk about this. Um, and a two-sided market is sort of like a newspaper where the cost of the newspaper is borne in part by the subscriber who pays to get it delivered and part by the advertisers who pay to, uh, to get it printed. And also, when the, as the paper gets thicker, they pay more and more to, co to, uh, to cover the increased cost of printing it. Well, you can have the same thing in the Internet. People can pay a fixed fee for their basic ISP connection, and then if they decide to stream day and night, what they can do is they can pay a fixed fee to the content provider like Netflix, and then Netflix can pay a little bit of that back to the ISP to cover the extra resources that all of this streaming takes. And then you've met all the criteria that the customer wants. You have fixed huh. fees, and everything gets paid for, and it's fair. But what you hear from the network neutrality advocates, they scream when they hear this, oh, no, the ISP is asking for ransom. Yeah, I, I can see how I can see how that that flow of money makes sense because rather than the ISP being responsible for bandwidth billing per customer, essentially Netflix is already charging their customers for their use of content, and so you just sort of change the way the money flows. Exactly, and the way and the way it's and the way the money flows in the end winds up being fair because the only people who are paying more than they would pay for their basic internet connection are the people who were signed up for Netflix and are going to, and are going to be using the extra bandwidth. So the chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, went ahead and proposed that when they made some new rules to try to keep ISPs from misbehaving, they allow what's called two-sided markets, and immediately. 
there was this tremendous hue and cry that you're hearing all over you're hearing all over the internet. Oh no, that's creating a fast lane. That's do it somehow unfair. Uh, most of this was actually the result of lobbying by Netflix and Google. Um, who simply didn't want any of the money to flow back from them to the ISPs. They wanted to keep it all. And so when you hear, when you hear people talking about that, that's, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is due to the publicity campaigns by the content providers that want to keep more of the total money that the customer is paying. It does make a lot of sense, Brett. Not to me, and but is- I, I'd like to jump in. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. Please. Uh, what you're saying is, of course, you want to make more money. I don't blame you. That's exactly what Comcast wants to do, and so does Google, and everybody else wants to make more money. What doesn't make sense is for you to undercharge so and then draw more money from the provider. You need to charge what your service costs you. Uh, and the problem is not Netflix, which can afford it, or Google, which can afford it, but Twit, which can't afford it. So what you're mm-hmm. telling me is that if I wanted access and your customers are downloading a lot of Twit, I'd have to give you some money. That's not how the Internet was designed, Brett. You know that perfectly well. It was never designed for edge providers to pay Internet service providers. You're a utility. You provide a utility. It's as if the water company says, well, you're drinking an awful lot of water. We're going to have to uh, figure out some way to get some water from the reservoir, some money from the reservoir. Your job is to provide free access to the Internet. Why is that not your job? Uh, Well, we... We're in business to make money, but we're not interested in making it unfairly. You know, we're, we're interested in earning our keep. But on the other hand, we can't because, – because bandwidth costs money, there's no way that we can afford to give an unlimited amount to any one person. If they, if they stream 24 hours a day, that's, uh, you know, that, that's going to cost more than you – know, this is going to cost more than they're paying well, you, you need to charge them for what they're using. Nobody's saying you can't yeah. do that. Yes. What they're saying is so, you can't go and, and to so Netflix or Twit and say, hey, by the way, you, our customers are using too much of you. Can you pay us some? Right. So, yeah, so well, that's the point that Brett was making when he laid the foundation saying that customers want to pay a fixed amount. And so if, if, if the ISP isn't going to get additional revenue from customers based on their usage, well, then the they alternative are, they, model. That's not going to work. <laughs> Sorry, so, so, yeah. that's so, not so, a good so, alternative what you're, what you're model. Is, so, 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 what, Leo, what, what I'm saying is, you yeah. cannot be biased about what content you bring your customer just because the customer says, "Well, I'm not willing to pay for my service." You charge more to the customer. That's fine. You charge. It's not really. It's not really what content. It's how much content. And so, I mean, it it's seems not. To me the it's model not. Is, no, no, it's not because it's no, very the, the specific to the provider. The model is very much like electricity. We know that if we if we leave air conditioning on all the time, if we use more AC, we're going to get a larger bill at the end of the month. And right yeah. now, that is not the way internet bandwidth works. And so what we're saying, I guess what you're saying, Leo, is that in order to keep this being a free ride for the content producers, then the consumers will have to pay based on the amount that they use, the, which – Understandably, I mean, but the which, issue is uh, who so who has to pay for that then? In other words, you're telling me that unless I have enough money to give Brett some money to have access to his customers, I don't get to exist on the Internet? Um, that's not what anyone's saying. Um, what are you saying? Okay. If somebody watches it, it, Twit 24-7, do you get to charge me? Actually, uh, actually Twit 
uses a lot less bandwidth than Netflix. Well, uh, Netflix tends to be a bandwidth. But let's hog, not use. I understand, but let's not use Twit, uh, uh, Netflix as an example. Let's use Twitter as an example. That's who the issue uh-huh. is. Is that not all service providers are alike, right? Exactly. Not, and, and the ones that, that impose the heaviest burden are the ones that probably should be participating in feeding some of the revenue back to cover the resources that they use. Um, well, you know, okay. They, so, and this is so again, you don't, but so that again, is fast lane the access. Of the consumer. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I'm not, so I'm not being. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, it, it, it seems really clear to me that the, that one, one of the problems we have is that consumers don't really understand the notion of bandwidth. They haven't been trained. They haven't been taught. They don't get that like texting uses no bandwidth and watching a movie is completely different from from texting or web surfing. So there just there isn't that notion. And and so so it seems to me that some of this is consumer expectation which right now consumers have been pampered. They they they've been able to do pretty much everything they want to, but the system is getting stretched because the nature of what people do with the internet has dramatically changed in the last few years. And Netflix is like the poster child for where, you know, for like for, for the driver of this change is suddenly now, hey, you know, we want to be cord cutters. We don't want to have to watch television, you know, when it's being broadcast. We want to just get it whenever we want it. Well, there is a real bandwidth cost for for providing that flexibility, which at this point, consumers have been insulated from. And so, for example, Brett, you're you're saying consumers want a fixed price bill. They don't want to pay extra based on their conduct. They just want Internet connectivity. Yet what they're wanting to do is dramatically more expensive now than it was pre-Netflix. And so the so the the model that the ISPs have come up with is in trying to keep the consumer from having to, you know, pay as they go or pay for their actual usage is to get the money which which this bandwidth actually costs from the providers. And I mean, I can see the elegance of that solution um, because the providers have accounts with their consumers. You know, Netflix has customers and the customers are paying for for the bandwidth, essentially. And and the alternative is Leo's model where where the providers are never charged for the fact that they're just offering this content. But that means then that the end users have to be charged on a variable basis for how much content they use. Exactly. And either model would work, but uh, the consumers strongly prefer to have fixed bills. Um, It's sort of like, I mean, let's go back to the analogy of the newspaper. Uh, When you get a newspaper that's thick with ads on a particular day, it's going to vary, you know, on on different days. You don't pay a different price for your subscription. Newspaper, you know, Paperboy doesn't come and say, well, your paper's weighed more this month. I'm going to charge you a little bit more. Um, What happens is the advertisers, the content providers in that context, make up the difference when they pay for those additional ads. 
um, they, they, they pay for the additional cost of those papers. And the consumer really likes this, and the advertisers think it's fair too. Um, what's happening here, though, in the Internet e ecosystem is that companies like Google and Netflix are refusing to be the conduit for that. And, uh, and, 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 well, okay, there's, there's a legitimate argument as to how you want to do this, as how you, as how, how you want to get the bills paid and, you know, keep, a, keep, keep the internet on. Um, but what they're doing, instead of coming out and saying, okay, we have a, we have a controversy here, we have to figure out, you know, how we're going to make this, uh, get everything paid for, instead they're demonizing the ISPs and they're claiming that the ISPs are evil for asking to be paid to, to deliver more services. And that's what's not fair. I guess we've sort of seen a half step in the way cell bills have been arranged where, you know, where, in, where the, you know, there are similar constraints. There's a limited amount of bandwidth. There's 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 which a, a certain customer base has to share. And so there are bandwidth caps and variable plans which you use in order to to try to match your consumption with with a model that makes sense for the ISP. And, and, and this is why I brought up the idea of electricity, because consumers are actually used to paying a variable amount for their electric bill every month. And at, at this moment, there is no variability in what we pay for bandwidth to our ISP, but, but there is in the electricity uh, th that we use from our from our um, our electrical utility provider, and of course, I pay. The problem is not that I, I'm not paying for my access to the internet, or Google, or anybody isn't. We're all paying right. for our access to the internet. We pay through the nose for our access to the internet. It's that we yeah, don't want to have to pay the ISPs too. Why? You're, it doesn't make any sense at all, Brett. You, you want us to bur shoulder a burden that you're unwilling to shoulder. Uh, you offer as an internet service provider free and open access to the internet. Do you not? Uh, yes, we do. Well, that's but your offer, cost, and it's got to cost but, you uh, what it costs you. Well, bandwidth costs money. Well, we. Don't, I know. We I pay for it. I have to pay you too. Well, yes, it costs a tremendous amount of money to do this. We pay. You know, we um, until a couple of years ago, we were paying a hundred dollars per megabit per second per month for our bandwidth. When we made our direct connection to the internet, managed to get managed to get that cost down. We still wound up paying twenty dollars per megabit per second per month. And that you know that's a good price when you're out here in a rural area. This really costs money, and in order to keep the lights on, we do need somehow to, to you know to, to cover the costs. Wherever that money, whatever revenue model you arrange, um, whether whether some of it flows, you know, whether the customer pays for all of it, whether there's a meter running, whether there's a cap, whether some of it is fed back through the content providers you certainly you just need a certain amount of money to keep the lights on for you know for me to be able to pay my employees um i'm not being greedy here i'm just trying to make the books balance or i have to shut things down so uh, you know I'm not, I'm not trying to be unfair uh, i i don't think it's fair to demonize me for doing that i'm open to different models but what isn't going to work is to uh, is to stretch the ISP farther and farther to the point where it can't stay in business. Well, and I, my big concern is, as we all know, that open internet is what's created so much innovation and progress. And uh, my problem is, I do pay. I pay for everybody who watches every show, everybody who downloads every show. The cost is not negligible. We pay, of course, our provider. Um, I'm not sure why I should support you in your business. Uh, you, you know, you, your customers need to pay a fair price. Uh, to, and the problem is not so much that 
I mean, I don't know how I would pay every internet service provider for access to their customers. You want to charge the internet, your customers access to the internet, for internet access to the internet, and you want to charge me for access to your customers. That sounds like you've got a crappy business model, Brett. It's not my problem because I, I'll be honest with you, I can't do it. And what you're going to do is you're going to shut down every small content provider because every ISP comes to them and says, hey, would you like access to our customers? And by the way, your customers are not going to be very happy either because all they're going to get access to is the big guys. So it seems to me that your business model is flawed, Brett. Well, unfortunately, Leo, I, while, I, while I created a lot of technology that provides the service, I didn't create the business model for the Internet. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, that was something which I, which I kind of had to adopt and go along with based on what, 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 was, what resources were available to me and what customers you want. And I, and I, and I, and I understand your point of view and your position very well. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately, to some extent, of course, it's your advertisers who are really, who are really paying the bills for you. Uh, of, of course, and they're you know they're paying to reach the customers, and they may be may or may not be willing to pay to uh, you know for, for extra well let's not use me then but, let's use the Electronic yeah. Frontier Foundation as an example or uh -huh. a nonprofit that uh, wants to be on the internet wants to use the internet as it's, and it's been used very effectively uh, to organize to uh, to raise awareness. Uh, you're saying that any company that wants to be on the internet should have to pay for access to people at the other end. Someone should pay for it, Leo. Yes, your customers, um, in the because case, that's what they're the, paying and, for. And again, my, and again, my customers do pay a fixed fee for a month, and that gives them a certain amount of access, whether or not the content provider is paying. Um, if they want to access a nonprofit, whatever, you know, the, the Red Cross, you know, any, any nonprofit in the world, that will get them there. But when we're talking about very high bandwidth, high high profit material such as you know again such as things like netflix and you know then uh, you know, then we in order to do that because it commands so many so many resources one way to do that is to have a business model where uh, where revenue comes from the other side again um we could do it by billing the customers we could do it with caps there is a site out on the internet though which expresses tremendous frustration with that have you, have you yeah, ever no, been I, to the stop the cap website yeah no i understand that and and maybe customers are expecting too much or maybe isps aren't willing to tell the truth to their customers yet i see so many countries like uh you know, Scandinavia, South Korea, where they get uh, ample bandwidth for very low costs. We pay an awful lot in this country for our access to the Internet. Uh, why is that? Uh, well, we're a bigger country. We, we, we geographically, we're, we're much more spread out. Um, we, you know, in some place like Korea, it's very easy to provide high speed, high speed internet access to, to everybody, extremely high speeds. Um, although in fact, if you, if you look at the numbers, you know, they, they're claiming gigabit access. In fact, most people never use anywhere near that yeah. much. Um, the total, the sum total of all of the human senses combined is about the amount is, is about the bandwidth of a T one line. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but in fact, uh, we, you know, we, we have a large and difficult to span country. Um, I, I have only one choice right now of fiber providers that I can hook to. I'm working right now on building hundreds of miles of microwave dishes out so that I have a second choice. And that costs money. And ultimately, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to profiteer off of this. I'm just trying to pay the bills. Ultimately, the cost of doing that is going it, it you know, has to come back to the consumer somehow. So I think what we, you know, I think what we're seeing here is that one of the things that network neutrality is really about is not so much the idea that people are going to censor, but just what 
how do you structure a business model that's fair to everybody and works for everybody and doesn't you know and, and, and doesn't exploit any uh, you know, any one of the businesses that's in the chain between between the person who creates the content and the end user and it's a it's a legitimate policy i just wish there wasn't so much acrimony here yeah and i understand i just feel like the the risk the high very real high risk however uh, you benevolent you feel that comcast is is uh, that uh, the internet as we think it was, maybe it was never designed this way, but I always thought of the internet as the idea was that uh, bits can travel freely, openly uh, uh, to any other point on the internet. Uh, and it, the benefit to that of, uh, to the country and to the users and to society is uh, that uh, all kinds of speech can be heard, uh, all kinds of innovations can be created like Skype. And I worry very much that Comcast is not the benevolent uh, company that you seem to think it is. I'm not worried about Brett Glass's ISP. I'm sure I don't have to worry about Lariat. But I worry a lot more about Comcast. I think you're wrong when you say there's no history of misbehavior. I think there's a long and checkered history of misbehavior. Um, and I think that – now, and I also understand that – and I would guess that you have a political bent that is against government regulation in general – and I understand people's reluctance to let the government involved get involved in any way on the Internet. But I feel the government has created this problem by creating a lack of competition. Um, maybe the solution is to, is to foster competition as opposed to uh, regulate net neutrality. Well, and I, I well, really I think do think we're going through an interesting phase where we're talking – what we're seeing is – the and we've discussed this on the podcast in the last few weeks – the notion of the commercialization of the Internet – you know, this was something that the three of us created effectively decades ago and sort of nursed and watched and fed. And, you know, we used email and and and, you know, brought this thing to birth, essentially. And it to me, it almost seems inevitable that that this is going to end up going commercial, that the Internet is going to be turned into, a, you know, a, a Various forms of business. I mean, so like Tim, the Tim one Wu that says, it's a it's a pendulum that swings between uh, uh, oligopoly and uh, and and uh, p community. What what do you, Brad? Do you think that community internet is a viable uh, alternative to this? Well, that's an interesting point, Leo. I in a way, you've created started, one, haven't yes. you? Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, when I started Lariat back in 1992, I started it as a nonprofit. It was a nonprofit rural telecommunications cooperative. And it ran that way for 10 years. After the 10 years were up, the members of the cooperative uh, decided that they would rather buy from a private company that could, that could get investment, that could go out and, and do some things that it was tough to do with a nonprofit. And most of all, they didn't feel like they were competent to really manage the thing. They weren't techies. And they didn't like the idea of being members of a co-op where they really didn't even know. You know, they, they had a vote, but they didn't even really know what to vote for. They just wanted to pay for a product and have it be a good one. They wanted to have a choice of, of people to go to, if possible, for that product. So in a way, they, they, our, our users decided that rather than have this be a communal resource, um, that they wanted, to you know, they wanted to encourage entrepreneurship. They asked me and my wife if we would take it private, and so we did. Hmm. And the privatization of the Internet, by the way, at that point was well underway. Right. Um, it started in the early 90s. 
And the, uh, for, uh, the moment, as a matter of fact, uh, companies began getting on the in- Internet left and right, um, it became inevitable that it was going to become privatized. What the Internet became in the early 90s, and you know, this was the vision, was that it would be a federation, federation of privately owned networks that agreed to work together for mut- you know, out of mutual self-interest. Um, it's a very heterogeneous federation of, of networks. It's full of, you know, people talk about slow lanes and fast lanes. Well, it's full of fast lanes and slow lanes and in between lanes and back roads and special detours to try to get things to certain places faster. Um, that's just the way the, you know, that, that, that's the way the Internet actually has, has always been. Uh, people talk about the idea of fast lanes and slow lanes as if it's something new, and, and the Internet has always had them. It's always had prioritization for certain kinds of traffic, for instance. Um, the, yes, it's chaotic. Yes, it's, uh, you know, it, makes things more, it makes things less predictable. It's sure, certainly less predictable than the Bell system was when it guaranteed that your phone call was going to go through. Um, but this chaos has led to wonderful things. And before we restrict it too much – we need to think about you know how you know think about whether we're going to lose the benefits of this chaos this this you know this this creativity and and frankly and, and frankly this this entrepreneurial drive that people will have in the hopes of making some money well and and leo when when you talk about regulation you're talking about the government preventing these sorts of deals right i mean enforcing well, Neutrality, and, and I think the subtext of this is that uh, a lot of people who wish the uh, FCC would uh, uh, protect an open internet are uh, uh, believe that the FCC needs to adopt Title II of the Telecommunications Act, which would classify Brett and every other broadband provider as a, a so telecommunications a service, a common carrier. And yeah. uh, and I'm and I, I understand that that's Brett doesn't want that. I don't blame you. Uh, although uh, there isn't any evidence of how the FCC would enforce these rules, I mean they're not required to enforce all the telecommunications rules. So actually, uh, yeah, Leo, actually, I can I can speak to that as well because it's kind of interesting. Title two, if you read Title two of the Telecommunications Act, all you need to do is go online and type in the following thing into you know, following term into any search engine. Type in forty seven space USC space two o one. That will get you to the beginning of Title II of the Telecommunications Act, and you'll start to read. And one of the first things you'll see, the first couple of paragraphs in, you'll start to see that it talks about different kinds of telecommunications, how to classify the traffic according to who is calling whom, and prioritizing it and charging different amounts for it, all of the things that the network neutrality advocates don't want. And that are built into that law. Once you adopt it, there are some parts of the law that the FCC claims it can ignore. It can't ignore that part. That part's mandatory. Um, it, it basically what Title II does is it regulates. It would it would try to regulate the internet as if it was a 19th century telephone company. Right. The rules don't fit at all. And you know, well, while some people say maybe we want something a little more, a little more responsibility on the part of ISPs, I don't object to that. You know, because we now are filling a more and more important role in society. Title II is so wrong for this. As right. I said, you'll two or three paragraphs in, you'll realize this is not the right way to go. If we're going to do something, it should be de novo and it should be designed for the internet. I agree with you on that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get any of the above. But <laughs> uh, it's, I'm really glad you could come on, Brett, and uh, and make your case, especially as somebody who is on the ground with this. 
Um, oh, yes, yeah, I'll be climbing is... on a customer's uh, roof this afternoon, or in the as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, and and un unlike, unlike the big guys like Comcast, I actually meet every single one of my customers. So, uh, That's neat. You know, so, so, so I'm, really, I'm, I'm actually, when I, when I speak about all of this, I'm not speaking about this in the point of view of a large corporation that's out to make money. I'm searching myself to try to find out what the best thing is for my users. And yeah. all I can say is when you hear the term net neutrality, don't think that it's simple and don't think that there are really any black hats and white hats. It's I think that's clear. I think you've made that, that very, very clear. And, uh, and I certainly want you to be able to do what you're doing because I think it's very important to the community. You are the choice for the community. Um, I think maybe the community doesn't understand how expensive it is to do what you want to do. I, I think that's exactly <laughs> the case. And the, the and other I don't thing want you to really cost me because your community doesn't get it or the other thing that, the, the, the other thing that's so frustrating for Brett is that he'll have a hundred different people all streaming the same content at you know, like overlapping or similar times or, or even at different times. But there's this this huge amount of very expensive redundancy right now in the way this is set up, which is, you know, from my technical standpoint or, or thinking is why it's it's so compelling to think about caching that the expensive content within the within the, the borders the yeah. of the ISP right. so that one, That's you know, the first customer to get it brings it in and then you have it locally for all the other 99 people who want, who want to watch, you know, the seventh season of Mad Men. Yes, and Steve, you'll notice I'm nodding. I think you're absolutely right about this from a technical standpoint. And I have besieged Netflix with emails and telephone calls saying, why can't you let an ISP cache your content? I am willing to go out and buy a huge machine with tons of disk drives to do exactly that. They will not let me do that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, it's probably they, Hollywood yeah. won't let you do that, I would guess. But um, I, they, they claim <laughs> that their technology was not oh. set up to allow it. Interesting. And in fact, in fact, they're violating Internet standards because Internet standards actually say that static content that's repeatedly sent over the Internet ought to be cacheable. But they, that's, uh, that's but they puzzling. Don't yeah, that's puzzling because I, I, I believe Apple uses Akamai to cache uh, Netflix content for well, uh, Apple And TV the term users, you so. used that the term you used for that Netflix service is that, isn't it? I thought that that thing that that ISPs do, where they install Netflix or Netflix gear in their the open, data center, the Open Connect plan. Yes, yeah. Actually, Open Open Connect is not a cache. Open Connect oh. is a server. It actually gets loaded up with all of the content, whether or not anybody streams it. So it doesn't save as much as a cache would. A whole lot of stuff so it's gets a, transmitted so, to that so server. It's a big oh, that's never used. Ah. Uh, that's not good. Well, unfortunately, so, I know how hard this is. We're gonna we're gonna move along because we can only take okay. three or four hours for this. But uh, <laughs> and I know how hard it is because as soon as Brett came on, Lariat.net went down. Uh, you might want to go check your uh, servers because we we probably just crashed your your site. Well, believe it or not, we're working over um, right now. As as I as I as I talk to you, I am skyping over wireless right now. So it's good. You, so it's, you, you've had an excellent connection. Still be up. Yeah. Yes. Yep. It's working Very quite well. Nice. Yeah. 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 Just the website. Brett, stuff. thank you so yes. much. This was really good. Very interesting yes. stuff. Yes, Leo, Steve, it's been fantastic. It's you know, let me know if there are other conversations to, about anything to which I can contribute. Don't send me a bill we'll for do. your website, though. Okay. <laughs> I, I promise. I promise I won't do that. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. Take care.
Okay, Thanks, Brad. Oh, we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, Steve and, uh, Gibson, Leo Laporte, and uh, thanks to uh, Brett Glass. Really interesting stuff to have uh, Brett on. Um, Steve, what do you want to do? You want to do your headlines here, or uh, I don't know how many questions we're going to get to. Yeah, we'll just do. We'll get to as many as we get. We'll to. do what we do. Um, okay. Yeah, um, I wanted to share something that really hit the news and was interesting in the last week, and I think people tweeted it to me just because everyone understands my stance. But I first saw this from Matt Graham's blog. Uh, Matt, it, it's Graham Labs L A B S dot com, and the. Uh, the the URL tale is embedded saves the day. So, and I imagine if you just go to gramlabs.com, it's the most recent uh, posting. Uh, and Matt doesn't take credit for this. Uh, he recognizes that he stumbled upon it as he was like sort of in, in, in the way the world works now where there's sort of this, this group conscience of things that are happening. And what came to light in hacker forums and uh, and that Matt reported and then ZDNet and Beta News and others have all picked it up and confirmed it is, yes, is that the point-of-sale versions of Windows XP do not have their updates cut off as of last month. Those continue till 2019, another five years. So the cash registers and the ATMs, which are are using Windows XP embedded, are not in trouble because they continue to get updates. The question then is what's the difference? And it turns out there's a lot of difference, but there's only one thing significant, and it is one registry entry. Anyone who's running Windows XP can add a single registry entry by, by and, and Matt lists it and ZDNet has their, their article. It, it's uh, uh, Larry again who did a, a, a piece, registry hack enables continued updates for Windows XP. I'm sure you can find it that way. So you turn this into a text file, you double click or, and, and aim at dot reg, R-E-G, double click it, It'll confirm, and this is for Windows XP only, it'll confirm that you want to enter this into the registry. It adds under the HKey local system or HKey local machine system key under WPA. It, it, it's it's a, a key POS ready, and it sets a, a value of installed to one. Essentially, now your own Windows update and Microsoft think that your version of Windows XP is embedded and you now continue to receive security please updates. Please don't contact me if it breaks Windows, which it will. <laughs> well, which it will um, because you're going to download an update that's inappropriate and you're going to be so Microsoft says Windows customers run a significant risk of functionality issues with their machines if they install these updates. They are not tested against Windows XP. Okay. I mean, of well, course you're going to say so that, you, but I think that's yeah, actually so probably could be the case. Um, uh, 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 right? My guess is that, that <laughs> this work will work just fine 
because in fact they are the, they are essentially the same operating system and they've been receiving all of the same security updates up until now and we know that Microsoft is continuing to provide Windows XP updates under a paid plan for people who want extended updates my guess is that this won't last long that Microsoft will produce an update which updates this out of existence yeah um, but for the time being I thought this was an interesting hack I'll, I'll read you the uh, Microsoft statement which they provided for ZDNet just just so that we don't we're off the hook here we recently became aware of a hack that purportedly aims to provide security updates to Windows XP customers Security updates that could be installed are intended for Windows Embedded and Windows Server 2003 customers and do not fully protect Windows XP customers. Windows XP customers also run a significant risk of functionality issues with their machines if they install these updates. They are not tested against Windows XP. They say the best way for you to protect yourself is to upgrade to a more modern operating system like Windows 7 or Windows 8.1. Now we're off the hook, Steve. <laughs> you may, All right. You may proceed. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, By the way, that's Larry Seltzer, our friend Larry Seltzer writing that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, eBay lost control of their uh, user database. They're saying it was late February and early March. Wow. And, and then it went unknown until two weeks ago when last Wednesday they posted the news. Um, and I didn't see any numbers so normally we get numbers that are sort of dramatic, like, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of people this represents. Um, I think this is just all. Which is, which is 145 million. Uh, oh, all is 145 million. And they gave us all, no reason to think it wasn't all, frankly. Correct. Yeah. There, was, there, there was no division no. or if you'd only no. logged in in the last Some customers year or, or, or some. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So this is customer names encrypted passwords we'll come back to that phrase uh, email addresses physical addresses phone numbers and dates of birth so definitely highly sensitive information that was lost you know names email addresses physical addresses meaning you know your ship to address and phone numbers and and so forth um, they specifically said this does not include financial information so your credit card stuff is in a different database that presumably was not hacked. And there has been, they're saying, no evidence that any of this has been used. Um, so it's not clear what evidence they would have because a lot of this is real world material, not just cyber material. And they've never given any clarity to what encrypted passwords mean. You know, how how are they salted? You know, what algorithm used, what size they are, and blah, blah, blah. What did raise a lot of ire was that that so so the consequence of this was eBay sending out email. Uh, it took me a long time to get mine. I, I got mine today. To Yes, I got mine yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and this so this rollout of email began last Wednesday. So, yes, it takes a little while to get 145 million pieces of email out. Yeah, I guess so. Um and the technology isn't very mature. There's a there's a banner posted on your eBay account when you log in and even before you log in advising you to change your password. But it doesn't know whether you have or not. So even after I did, because I've had the same password, the good news is this was back in the era where I had a handful of passwords 
And it's one that I hadn't changed because I, by some coincidence, never used it anywhere else. And it was a good password, but it was short. Um, so I took the opportunity to make this as long as possible. It used to be that there was no upper length limit on eBay passwords. And I was heard from some of our listeners who had 64 character passwords, which are no longer accepted. eBay now requires an 8 to 20 character password uh, for whatever reasons, just it seems arbitrary to me. Um, but for what it's worth, 20 completely random characters with with upper and lower case and special characters thrown in, all of which eBay accepts. In fact, they have a requirement for uh, passwords to have some of that junk in them to make them stronger. Um, that's really going to be all the strength you need. So, you know, again, tw- you know, I-, I think people are a little annoyed at any length limit because we know technically there need not be any. And in fact, I'm stepping on one of our Q&A questions, I just realized, <laughs> because because that's where I got some of this was from someone telling me of his experience. So we'll, we'll get to that uh, here in a few minutes. So anyway, that's that news. Uh, anyone who's used eBay, probably who has ever had an account, uh, will be either has or recently or will be getting email telling them, eh, you ought to change your password, even though we don't know of any mischief that anyone has gotten up to the passwords were encrypted in a way we're not disclosing still we think it'd be a good thing for you to change your password so i just feel like there's uh, so much we don't know that they're just not telling us anything they they've said very little you know and and, you know (laughs) it's it's never good news for anyone when they're saying ah sorry everyone who uses us have to change their password the real issue is people who use the same password in multiple places Yes, and they they do in their blog post and in the various news stories you know, remind people you know of the nightmare which is we've been saying that for years. It's yeah. really unsafe to use to reuse the same password in two locations, which yeah. then of course transfers all the burden onto the user until we get to a world where we no longer need passwords, which we'll be talking about here in a minute. Um, just this morning, the news broke that Australians woke up to find their iPhones, iPads, and Macs locked. Did you guys cover this on on? Um, yeah, and I don't think it's... I think it's... Uh, it seems like a small thing. Very not small. Li- <laughs> yes, not, not not like it's like, like everything. Like a handful it looks of like, people. <laughs> yes, and, and also, I mean, there are a couple curious things. First of all, the hacker goes by the name Oleg Pliss, O-L-E-G-P-L-I-S-S, but he wants people to send him between fifty and a hundred dollars through his PayPal account to Hotmail address lock four oh four at hotmail dot com. <laughs> well, a couple so, of things on that. Oleg Pliss is a well known programmer at Oracle. It's not the guy's name, obviously. And the right. PayPal says there is no such account. So they're uh, not really asking for money because there's no way to give them money. Well, and this, you, you, this, like PayPal is the last place you would want to be sending, you yeah. know, bootleg malware yeah. ransom. It's through. you can't. Because and PayPal the good news would... is you can't send them any money. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, uh, we decided on MacBreak Weekly that the, it's likely there was some uh, other issue somewhere. 
perhaps, you know, it could have been the eBay thing where somebody used the same password on iCloud mm-hmm. as they used on eBay. Somebody, you know, something like that. Somebody tried a few yep. and it worked. So, so here is the takeaway, though, because if you did not have a password on your devices, then this small hack, and I again, I agree with you, Leo, it's not like it's hundreds of millions of people. It's some people. Um, they found an unknown passcode, unknown to them, had been added to their device, which prevented them from doing anything. People who had previously installed a passcode on their devices, so needless to say, that's all Security Now listeners, uh, you're able to restore from a backup in iTunes and you're okay. So for those who, who did implement security on their devices, you're able to to get yourself back up on your feet without any problem. And it's not clear, actually, unless you know more about what people do whose phones are locked with a passcode they don't know. I think there's nothing I you guess can do. They could just wipe them, right? Yeah, restore it from your backup. Wow. And then, uh, in interesting bit of synchronized news, uh, Apple had a little trip uh, over their feet this weekend. The swscan.apple.com SSL certificate, which is required to do software updates, expired uh, on Saturday, and software updates broke. Whoops. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, I put that domain name, swscan.apple.com, into my favorite certificate testing site, digicert.com slash help. Uh, And also SSL Labs has the same sort of facility. And yep, the certificate is now valid from May 25th of 2014, which was Saturday, uh, or I guess Sunday, uh, to May 24th of 2016. So they have a two-year certificate, uh, which was minted in an emergency mode immediately upon someone realizing, whoa, uh, we, uh, that one got away from us. And it's a, it's semantic cert, which is signed by VeriSign. So there, there's a, 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 like a four certificate chain of, of authentication in there from VeriSign as the CA, then to, to semantic, then to Apple, then to this insert. So interesting. Um, I'm continuing to make great progress with Squirrel. Um, the uh, I just finished addressing a- after putting the whole entropy issue to bed. Um, I uh, just finished redesigning Squirrel's secure storage system. I had quickly cranked one out um, many months ago when someone needed it. Uh, so somebody who was implementing their own client. And I made it very clear this was all provisional, but now I need to use it. And I looked at it and thought, okay, this no longer really makes any sense because I have a much better sense for the context of its application. So in the last three days, I redesigned that, uh, posted the spec, updated the web page at GRC. Anyone who's curious uh, might find it interesting. It's a nice little walk through some computer science where – I've designed an extremely lean data representation, which is also extremely expandable for the future. 
um, not loaded with lots of metadata like JSON or XML. It's a binary-friendly format because we want to be able to print these on small QR codes and also print them out and put them in a safety deposit box where in the, in the worst case, you might want to re-enter this by hand. Um, you know, it's, I'm reminded, for example, that if somebody had data on an MFM hard drive today, they'd be hard-pressed to find an MFM controller and 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 a ISA bus that they could plug that controller into in order to get the data off it. You know, despite the fact that we're seeing technology move forward, paper is, you know, predates computers and it may well post-date them. So uh, that's our ultimate backup medium. And I want to make that practical to use for storing squirrel identities because it's, you know, we have technology available to protect paper. Uh, I loved, you know, Bruce Schneier's famous comment is that, you know, write your password down and put it somewhere safe because it's better to have a password complex enough that you have to write down than one simple enough to remember uh, because people know how to protect p- p- pieces of paper. Um, so uh, that's all done. Uh, the spec is finished. I will implement that next uh, and then continue moving forward. And I did have a uh, another really uh, neat piece of uh, Spinrite mail that I found this morning when I was going through our, our Q&A questions written by uh, someone who I just uh, identified himself by his first name, Matt. He sent it on Sunday the 25th, so two days ago, uh, from Waterloo, Ontario. The subject was Spinrite Saves the Day. And he said, hi, Steve. I'm a fourth-year computer engineering student at the University of Waterloo, and Spinrite recently saved my team and me hundreds of hours of work. During fourth year, we've, we have to come up with a design project that showcases what we've learned throughout our degree. My team had worked for over a year on our project and had most of it stored on one member's Lenovo laptop. Three days before the project was due. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. Okay. <laughs> three days before the project was well, to their credit, they had a backup. Okay. But he says three but three days before the project was due, his computer would no longer boot. We hadn't backed up the project in over a week. But you can imagine, you know, with like them being three days away from due. And students being what who students are, yeah. the, the, a, a huge amount of work was probably occurred, <laughs> but between you know that last backup and the time that the suddenly this Lenovo laptop would no longer boot. So he says, so it was critical that we get that we got our data back, since the system wouldn't boot. We tried putting the hard drive in an external enclosure to recover just its data. But the drive wouldn't mount on any of our systems. Desperate, I remembered that I had purchased a copy of Spinrite a few years back and had it burned on a CD at my apartment. I raced home to get the CD and popped it into the laptop. 16 hours later, Spinrite had fixed and recovered the data in more than 50 bad sectors. And we were able to pull the data we needed from the drive. Thanks for your hard work and for the excellent podcast, wow. Matt. And wow, Matt, wow, wow. Thank you. 
for the, for the story. And uh, did they say what the grade know, was? Uh, haven't heard, but I'll, I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> I'd be curious. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, I'll just wrap by saying that I'm continuing to get feedback. Uh, I have a freshly shaved puss here, ah. courtesy of Harry's. Uh, someone named Brandon, who tweets as B Scott X, said, "Reposting my at Harry's recommendation, best shave ever and better prices." Glad to see they're now sponsoring Security Now with at SGGRC on at Twit. And I'll just mention that others have reported similar amazement at the quality of their shave. And I've heard from a bunch of people who are ordering. And in every case, I've said, I want to hear back. Either way, if you're not impressed, if you are, just, you know. Let me know because if you got to stop doing just... ads without people paying you, because that's <laughs> <laughs> look at my my mustache fell right off thanks to Harry's. No. All right, Steve, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we have questions, you have answers. Stay tuned. But our show today brought to you by Pro XPN. Steve's mentioned it before. Uh, surely, if you've watched this show for any length of time, you know the risks of using open Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, furthermore, uh, we talk a lot about government spying on you. You know who knows more about you than anybody else? Your internet service provider. Everything you do goes through your ISP. And if your ISP is taking a look at what you're doing, maybe they've got that six strikes rule, you might want to protect yourself against them too. This is what ProXPN is great at, protecting you from you, from your from your computer out to the ProXPN server. There's some other additional features that are kind of cool. Uh if your if your ISP is watching what you're doing with regard to watching Netflix or Skype, this will hide that from them too. That's not a bad idea. And you can also emerge anywhere in the world in London and Singapore. They have servers in Amsterdam and of course in the US too. ProXPN is an open VPN implementation that's hosted for you, makes it easy to use, very affordable, and it even works on Android devices, which is cool. They do open uh, VPN, but they also do PPTP. But the good news is with their Android app, you can do open VPN on an Android device if you have version 4.0 or later. That's pretty sweet. They've got iOS apps uh, too. You can bypass internet filtering, bypass block websites, protect yourself against your ISP, protect your privacy. I think ProXPN is a great solution. They have a free uh, uh, solution if you want to try it. Here's what I suggest. Visit uh, proxpn.com slash twit, and you can read all about it. proxpn.com slash twit. You can compare the free offering to the premium offering, and I'll tell you why you ought to go with the premium offering. You can try it free, in effect, for seven days. You can cancel any time in the first seven days for a full refund. And you can use a Security Now offer code, which makes it very affordable. Normally, ProXPN is about 10 bucks a month, 75 bucks a year. But if you use the SN20 promo code, you get 20% off for the lifetime of the count. That's less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. That is a great deal. So check it out, proxpn.com slash twit. Read all about it. See what you get. And if you decide to buy, and by the way, they accept Visa, PayPal, and Bitcoin, so you can really be anonymous, use the offer code SN20, proxpn.com slash twit. Are you ready, Steve? We've got questions for you. Yeah, I you know I I'm self conscious about talking about Harry's, so I we ought to mention that we do have a security now promo code. No, you're there. not allowed that, to use that. There's no Harry's ad right now. 
Oh, Steve, you okay. undermine don't, my ability anybody... to charge Harry's if you give them free ads and promo codes. Uh, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> I figured you got credit for it no matter what. But they didn't pay for it. Yeah, I get credit for it. That's nice. Well, then they know they're advertising. All right, go ahead. What's the right. promo code? I'll explain how I'll explain how advertising works a little later off the air. Okay. What's the promo code? It's security now. It's not. It's twit five. But go ahead. Isn't it? Is it security now? Does that work? All right. It may not work. That's the problem, Steve. Oh, that's not good. I think it's twit five. But I, I have to go through. See, when they don't buy ads on the show. Well, they bought one last week. <laughs> I can't. He's here's irrepressible, folks. I can't stop him. If he likes a product, he's gonna he's I'm gonna talk about you, it. I, you know what? The way to find out if you go to uh, Twit, I'll do it right now for you. Save you some time. If you go to the website twit.tv, uh, there's a sponsors page, and you can see what the current uh, codes are for any given sponsor. And it might be security cool. now. Let me let me just check. Let's see here. Sponsors. Harry's. Oops, that went to the site. Didn't want to do that. Let's go back. Yeah, the offer code TWIT5 will save you $5 off your first order. Ah. I don't know what security now will do. Go ahead and try it. If it works, <laughs> it might work. But this is the one I think that's currently uh, on. You know, I'm going to go buy some stuff from Harry's and see if security now works. <laughs> Let me, uh, and then while, while I'm doing that, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you ready? I am. Herb Flores, he tweeted at you. His uh, Twitter handle is Herb Flores DNA, so apparently it's not him, but it's his DNA tweeting at you. Listening to four, five, episode 456 made me wonder, how do you juggle so many projects? Could you share your methodology on project management, Steve? Okay, so I, I, um, this sort of tickled me when I saw it because... Um, I would argue that I juggle projects badly. Um, I am, I am. I've really just checked. Obs- Security now does work. Go ahead and use that one. Yay! Yay! Okay, cool. Thank you. I'm glad we didn't have any fall in the gutter. So <laughs> nobody know, lost even, as a result. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I am obsessively monotasking, and I, it's just the way. I, I operate. It's a funny characteristic of my personality. I'm unable to talk to anybody who doesn't appear to be paying attention because I am unable to listen to somebody I'm not paying attention to. I just assume nobody else is either. So, and I'm always happy to wait until I have their attention, then I'll talk to them. But if they're busy doing something else, that's not a problem. I just, but I, I cannot speak. And and so I've just sort of noticed that about myself. Um, the people who have followed the work I do in the news group have are, are pretty much acquainted with the way I operate. And that is, you know, I am op- I'm working on Spinrite 6.1 and something happens. And it's like, oh, no, uh, crap. And as it is, I finished the phase of work I was on on Spinrite before I switched to Squirrel. And and now I'm working on Squirrel, and then oh no, something happened uh, called Heartbleed, and that brought up the whole revocation thing. And so I stopped working on Squirrel, spent a couple weeks on revocation, which seemed really important to me at the time, and then resumed work on Squirrel, and you know essentially popping the stack, 
and I will pop the stack again once Squirrel is up and running and return to Spinrite 6.1. I dislike doing that because there, I call it the switching cost. There's a substantial cost to me switching projects, just, you know, getting your head in the game. I mean, I've lost a lot of the context that was completely current when I was deep into 6.1. It'll come back. I mean, I, I created it from nothing, you know, initially, so I can get that context back. But, you know, so I, I resist distraction. I, I try to focus on, on things that are important, but I'm actually not juggling many projects or at least not at the same time. You know, I, 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 people sometimes say, hey, how's Spinrite 6.1 coming? It's like, well, it's not. I mean, I'm not doing Spinrite and Squirrel and certificate revocation. I'm only doing one thing at a time because it's just the way I operate. I mean, I don't know how anybody can do multiple things at once. And also, I become the thing I'm working on. I mean, I'm, it's on my mind when I'm in the car. I, it's on my mind when I go to sleep, when I wake up in the morning. I mean, I'm, I'm working on this thing all the time. So, and I, that's the way I want to be. I want those kinds of projects that are, that I can saturate myself with. And it, it but it's only got to be one thing at a time. So, you know, that's my mode is, is, you know, obsessive monotasking. Question from Andy Olson, also on the Twitter, Average Andy, AVG Andy on the Twitter. Uh, I-C-Y-M-I, I don't know what that means. It's an acronym of some kind. Yeah, I, I can you my, my request. Could you make the entire Security Now archive available via BitTorrent Sync? <laughs> now, this represents a request that we've been getting a lot more often. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that that there's a problem for me and when we were talking with Brett I uh, I recognized that you know I'm a content provider of of this archive of security now podcasts and I pay for bandwidth on you know very expensive bandwidth I'm in a level 3 data center so I'm a, a tier 1 connection to the internet um and I don't no, exactly. It's maybe it's thousands of dollars a month. And the way you pay when you're in a data center is is the so-called 95-5 rule where you you agree you have a certain bandwidth cap and that's what you and so that sort of sets a minimum which you pay every month. And as long as the 95th percentile of your usage is within that cap, you're okay. So it allows me to like have bandwidth spikes as long as they are, you know, spiking above that. Um, as long as sort of the, the, the 95th percentile when all of the different bandwidth chunks on five minute segments for the month sorted end up being less than that, I'm okay. The problem is, if I took all of this growing archive of nine plus years of podcast, it's very easy for someone to say, oh, I like a copy of that, and to press a button, and for 
for GRC to serve that to this user. And it's not that I don't want people to have the archived audio. It's that they may never get around to listen to it. I mean, I've had to serve the bandwidth, but they may not have needed it or even end up listening. If if I make it that available, it's easy to ask for and just seems very inefficient. Also, they could never listen to it in anything like the period of time they could download it. And that's the other point is, is that bandwidth which is spread fits within this cap that this 95.5 bandwidth deal, which is what how all data centers operate. And so it makes much more sense for people to download them in small pieces and listen to them and then download some more. That spreads it out so everyone has access to it and it fits within the cap. And people have said, oh, well, then, you know, make it a torrent. Well, okay, but then it's not reliably hosted. It still has to get hosted somewhere. And if it's not available from other people who are are up and running and and providing alternative sources in the torrent, you know, then it falls back to us and we're back in the same position or it's unreliable. And I don't want to offer unreliable, you know, kind of flaky torrent. So anyway, I, I'm what I may do at some point is is create a channel which is <coughs> excuse me bandwidth limited so that I could stream a large content out in in a way where for example it would use quality of service and it would be at the bottom hold, hold on can I just say that we offer every episode of security now for free at twit.tv slash sn every episode is there but they want to click one thing oh and, and download, download it all everything. all of them at once Yes. Well, we could do that for you if you want. Well, if if that, I don't think there's a huge demand for what is it, four hundred and I do fifty-seven episodes. Somebody says I want to click one button and download all four hundred fifty-seven episodes. They, they, they want the archive. That's like a lot of data. <laughs> that's exactly my point. Yeah. Now we'll do and, it and if see, that's just, really if there's the demand for it, we can do it. But you can do it. You could write a script that would download them one by one if right? you wanted. And I see I see those dialogues go by people like you know they use curl and they, all kinds of different scripting things. And you know I mean there 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 really is an interest in in obtaining the archive. Well, and BitTorrent sync wouldn't be the way to do it. I think this guy means no. BitTorrent is what he's thinking. Would somebody seed? And if somebody wants to do that, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. If you have all the episodes. Zip them up and seed that as a BitTorrent uh, seed. Well, we'll be glad to put the BitTorrent uh, link to that if you want. I mean, that's the other way to do it. That would cost <laughs> nobody any bandwidth. Right. BitTorrent sync's not the way to do it. Right. <laughs> uh, I wonder how many people really want all 457 episodes. It's, I, it's, I'm seeing it more and more. I guess as we create an archive, they're, they're, people are realizing, wow, you know, there's... You know, stuff here. It's like, well, that's true. All right. Um, hmm. <laughs> well, Andy, uh, you know, actually, we'll extend this to anybody who's listening. If you want to make a, it's not BitTorrent Sync. That's that's a misunderstanding of right. what what, what right. you want. If somebody wants right. to make Just, a BitTorrent seed of every episode, all in one zip file, you certainly can do that, and we would even publicize the link. How's that? It's, it's our license allows it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Will no, is, is 
Go I'm ahead. sorry, go ahead. It'd be good if, by the way, the way BitTorrent works is the more people who seed it, the better the response time is. So it would be good if we right. get like five people to seed it. Or if you use BitTorrent and you get the entire thing to keep it open and let it run and let the seed run. Right, exactly. I'm really curious how many people really want that whole thing. I wonder how big it is, too. That guy who did the okay, thing, so, so, the graph, so people did he do that? Should, should should tweet to at Leo Laporte. Yeah, um, do I'll, and I'll, let I'll Leo. Do that. Yeah, yeah, because because that'll give you some sense. Because I see it all the time. If we did it in, in BitTorrent Sync, no, that's not how. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. No, Sync is for you know little uh, private networks. Yeah, yeah. It, it it needs to be BitTorrented. Right. If it were gonna if it were gonna make sense. Right. I mean, I guess you could do it with BTC, but it'd be weird. Wheel in North Texas wonders about your use of www.steve.com. Uh, I'm not sure. I, he says, I'm not. Oh, by the way, ICYMI, in case you missed it. Ah, I did, as a matter of fact. And I even missed the in case you missed. <laughs> <laughs> in case you missed it. ICM. I've, that's the first time I've seen that, although John knew it. ICYMI. Question three, Wheel in North Texas. I understood your comment about no top-level domains called Steve. I'm not sure I understood. Uh, there is a Steve.com. Um, yes, there is. And what? boy, do I wish I had that. But of course there I is. don't. Uh, yeah, of course there is. Of course there is. Uh, so several people were confused, which is why this bubbled up to a, a Q&A worthy. Um, what I use is not www.steve.com, but www.steve. So the .com is the top-level domain, or in my case, www.steve, Steve is the top-level domain. So it's, you know, the, 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 the root or top-level domain or .com, .gov, .edu, .net, and .org, and so forth. Um, and so within my own network here um, uh, in my office where I work in code, my DNS server has entries for www.steve uh, and just .steve. And basically, it, it emulates the structure of GRC. So I'm able to use code, which, for example, bounces people from grc.com to www.grc.com, verify that's working by, by having my own little weird Steve network. Um, and so... You know that's what that's about. So sorry if I confuse anybody, but it, I actually did mean top level domain is Steve as opposed to second level. And domain. how do you use this with Hamachi or or what? Huh? Huh? Um, it's local. Yeah, host. Um, it's a local host. Well, yeah, I, you could use a hosts file. Um, right. I, I run a bind a bind DNS oh, server here, right. so I actually have I have I have a uh, what's the term in bind or in DNS? A it's not a region. A Got a whole jargon. You, I can't think the, of it. Here's the point: if you run your own DNS server, you could do anything you damn well want to. Exactly. <laughs> Include linking to Steve. By the exactly. way, you don't have to do www. You could just type Steve. Oh, and I do, and then yeah. it bounces me over to <laughs> www. <laughs> and thanks to the chat room, here is Seth Leedy's GRC Security Now podcast download script. Uh, it's a Bash script. If you've got access to Linux or Macintosh. It can look at the episodes already downloaded, download the next one. You can specify all or a range. You can specify Ooh. whether you get the PDF or HTML for the, the uh, transcript. You've got Boy, every... That's, 
That's that. what's been going on. I've been seeing people using that because I I look at my bandwidth and I go, okay, this Ooh. is this is strange. This is yeah. Odd, they should. But, yeah. uh, I would suggest you modify it to point to Cashfly, uh, so that it doesn't cost Steve any money. Let it cost Twit money, um, and we can and you can. But you'd have to modify the script. You know what I? And then somebody's saying, you know what? You can use B, BT Sync as a kind of a peer to peer, you know, Dropbox for people. So I guess what I should probably do, maybe I'll make this a project for next week, is download all the episodes. Ooh, wow. Put them on put my them machine. Put them on a folder. What would I share? What BitTorrent would I share my, that that long number? Yeah, you, you'd, you'd use that crazy 256-bit random string as the, as the you know, in, in very much the same way that Bitcoin uses that as right. an address that you send things to. You would publish that and say, "Hey, you know, connect to this and okay. and there's all your there's your files." Apparently, that's what uh, Dvorak and Curry do for no agenda. They have a uh, a BT Sync. Uh, no kidding. A distribution. Well, you know, they're cheap. <laughs> and where does where does Dvorak? Dvorak's not paying for bandwidth. Where I wonder. Oh, who well, that's the beauty that. of BT Sync. It doesn't cost any. You know, it's. The bandwidth's got to be minimal, right? And they are using a QR code to share that key as well as the big long key. So, so uh, All right, look at that nightmare. Yeah. So this is good. So there's a shared archive folder, and that's 54 gigs. So, so that's the key to this: is that by doing this, I could update it. You know, as a new show, I could just put the new show in it and so forth, and it would automatically be updated, right? Yeah. Wow. And oh, and it would automatically sync to people's drives. It would yeah. send it out to everybody yeah. who would want it. All seven of you that want every episode you could <laughs> automatically stay up to date. Seth Weedy's uh, GRC Security Now podcast download script is at s e t h l e d y dot com. And we move ready to move on to the next. Oh, more than <laughs> Steve.com. <laughs> Kelly Ship in Conway, Arkansas wonders what the heck's going on with port 80 and 443. Steve, I, I recently set up hosting at Rackspace and uh, created a site with an SSL certificate from your favorite vendor, Digicert. Do you have an offer code for them, Steve? <laughs> Actually, you know what? They approached us about advertising. They said, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, Steve they loves know us I'm so much. I'm a, yeah. I'm yeah. a fanboy. Yeah. Yep. See, here's the problem. When you give them free ads, they don't buy ads. <laughs> it's yeah. like, well, we don't need to buy an ad. <laughs> Steve is just going to plug us. I'm That's fine. I'm going to tell you who my favorite um, uh, you, Exactly. Right? I'm all for you yeah. telling us your favorite everything, from yeah. razor blades to cert certificate Science fiction. Books. It's a science fiction. Absolutely. Oh, and speaking of which, to, uh, just a reminder that finally, Halting Catch Fire is this Sunday. So... Anyone who's I'm been seeing we, mixed uh, yeah. comments on it now. Yeah. I haven't seen I it. I saw. I watched the first five minutes of their of their premiere episode. I kind of I don't know. It does look like it's compact because at one point they said we're going to reverse engineer the IBM PC. So Ooh. yeah, yeah. Kelly Ship, Conway, Arkansas. So remember, set up Rackspace Digicert. After I set up an initial test page, I discovered even under HTTPS. Secure HTTP. The server was responding via port eighty, not four four three. In Firefox, the lock fox, the lock in the address bar is locked 
as hoped. So all seems well from the client side. I'm still I'm concerned the server's saying it's communicating via port 80. What's going on there? He, he, oh, there's more. <laughs> uh, I contacted Rackspace Support, and they said, Connections to our network are over 443, but the traffic passed inside to the Apache PHP nodes is managed with port 80. After any necessary processes are complete, that data is passed back to the load balancer and transmitted over port 443. This tells me the traffic inside their network's insecure. What are your thoughts on this? I've never known a host to screw with a port number like this. Thanks, Kelly. That is exactly their architecture. Um, but that's a shared what, what, server architecture, right? Or well, even a dedicated act, server. Uh, actually, this is a this is a front end uh, SSL load balancer. Right. So, so this load balancer machine is is the one that is receiving and terminating all of the SSL connections. It has the certificate that Kelly loaded into it there. And so what happens is when someone connects with it, it terminate it, it, it does the three-way handshake. Um, the user then sends their query over SSL to it. It turns around and then initiates a standard TCP connection to the, ba- the server on the back end, which is just port 80. So none of those servers have SSL or certificates or any of that, that's all handled by, it's probably an SSL accelerator. It's probably got hardware SSL to allow it to handle a huge volume of connections, much more than a soft, uh, a, than software in the server would be able to handle. And then all the servers just see port 80. But, but Kelly's right. What this technically means is, you know, there are wires inside Rackspace where the encryption is stripped off as it goes between the load balancer and the server. Now, no, is that a concern? Well, I guess it's good to know from a security standpoint that that's the architecture. Um, you're, you're already trusting yeah, Rackspace. I mean, if they have access to, to those post- wires, they have access to your own ser- your server itself, right? Precisely. So, so, you know, they could certainly run something in the server if that's what they wanted to do in order to spy on you, right. uh, you might argue, well, this makes it a lot easier. But that's not why they've done it. They've done it because they want a very high-speed hardware SSL accelerator, which is also functions as a load balancer in order to distribute traffic. And then, and then all the certificates go there. And then you just have much simpler to set up and deploy servers on the backside that, the, where the, the, the security is handled for them. There are many things you could not do with that architecture. That is, you know, GRC could never operate that way because I'm intimately involved in all kinds of aspects of the of the specifics of for for, for the services that GRC offers, which are you know security related. Check your fingerprints on your certificates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for a you know a website that wants to be able to offer security, this does the job, and that this is just the architecture that Rackspace chose. So if you're an e-commerce site, for instance, um, yeah. you wouldn't have yeah, to. Yeah, you're dis- okay. That's, I'm sure they all work this way, don't they? I mean, I'm sure Amazon, once the SSL traffic gets to the front of Amazon, as soon as it's inside the... the- right. I, the only difference there is that 
that everyone behind works their accelerator right. it works right. for Amazon right. exactly right. instead of being a multi you know a multi hosted environment I presume you can trust Rackspace and if you couldn't yeah. you're in, you have deeper trouble anyway because they, <laughs> exactly. they have keys to the server as well yeah yeah they can pull the hard drive if they want and examine it and take all the data off of it and that kind of thing Robert Van Etta in Guam United States of America. What worries about the ghost in the machine? Allow me to dip into the paranoid side of things, he says, and perhaps you could provide some calibration. I recently discovered my tablet uses a single chip, the BCM Broadcom 4330, to handle all the wireless functions. It also has an integrated ARM processor with onboard memory. This in addition to the tablet's CPU and RAM. I am concerned that nefarious firmware on the wireless chip could potentially allow it to function as a backdoor to my system. Unfortunately, closed-source firmware makes it difficult to know for sure what is or isn't going on. What do you think? Is it time for me to worry or remove my tinfoil hat? Or maybe add another layer. Um, he's absolutely right. This is the architecture of modern systems. Um, no longer are they singular processor solutions we've been talking about the security of the uh the iphone where it's got a you know a fingerprint processor and a camera processor and you know a security processor and a main processor you know i mean it's now we've got little networks of independent processors it was running. worse before if you yeah. i mean these what the, the only thing systems on a chip do is they get them closer together if you, an early right. IBM PC, you had a different chips doing all different things, right? You serial chips, yeah. It was all we're all over the place. Your modem might not even have been in the computer. Yeah, we also have this whole issue of the baseband, the so-called baseband, yeah, we which about is that. sort, yeah. yeah, which is sort of what this is, where it, it's a processor, you know, typically from Broadcom, that's like you know doing all of the the cellular stuff, and. Unfortunately, it's sort of a black box that the various phone providers just stick in. because it's it crappy. Does it's crappy exactly. software. <laughs> exactly. Old and potentially yeah. buggy and crappy. And, and it, you know, it's not anything like this beautiful security architecture that Apple designed for iOS. But it's the way it's always been. This is not anything yeah. new. I, I, you know. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I think you, that's there are better things to worry about. I guess is the way to put it. It's like, yeah, I mean, it could be bad, but you know, <laughs> you you really, if you're going to use any of this technology, you've got to trust someone. Yeah, I think people don't understand that. Uh, you know, unless you go in a cabin, right, <laughs> and seal the doors. There's always somebody else. And read paper books. Yeah. Yeah. No electricity. Athol Wilson. I don't know. Am I saying that right? Athol? Athol uh, Wilson. Well, you want to make sure you pronounce the T. Athol Wilson in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, further uh, pondering questions of entropy. Our, our issue, our topic of last week. Steve, I just had the thought that with many uh, still convinced that a collision is not impossible... And you mentioning that not all of the original 512 bits were being used to generate keys. If additional non-random bits were included that contained, say, 32 bits of the current time in seconds, about 130 years before it repeats, would this not restrict a collision to just those generated in exactly that second? 
as the rest of the bits are still truly random, would the additional portion of non-random bits degrade the use or security of the generated key or perhaps enhance it? He's saying add a timestamp. Yeah, and it's really an interesting thought problem. Um, and it w- reduces the security. Um, the The reason that happens is that we've got 32 bits that are not going to be changing very much so much and that's true to the to, to the point that it takes 130 years for all possible combinations of them to come up yet the lifetime of key generating with a given version of squirrel what maybe a decade maybe 20 years so so the point is that many more combinations would never be used that could have been used to reduce collision probability. And essentially what this means is if we had those 32 bits, it is far better to make them as random as possible mm. so that we're using all of them all of the time than sort of you know, reserving uh, nine-tenths for a period of time after which Squirrel was probably even in use. So, yes, you cannot get better than allocate as many bits as you feel you need, but nothing is better than random. I love that. That is a great thought problem because you're saying, well, I am so concerned about the... purely theoretical and highly unlikely possibility of collision that I want to add this timestamp. But in yep. order to do that, I have to reduce the possible options. Admittedly, the timestamp then keeps it from having a collision but once every 130 years. But as it turns uh-huh. out, you're cutting so much entropy out of it yep. that you're still better off ha- you know, having allowing the possibility of a collision. The, the collision thing bothers people, though, doesn't it? It does. It's just, it's just, and this is why, you know, one of our recurring themes is how bad humans are about probability. Yeah, we don't get I it. mean, it, it's yeah. like, okay, yeah, so it's 10 to the 45th times more likely that we're going to be killed by a meteor strike in the next second. But, but it could happen. It could happen. You know, it could it happen. It could happen. It's like, okay, yeah. So, you know. <laughs> what you're saying, though, I want to make this clear is this an opinion? That it would be better to have the entropy than to have the timestamp. No, no, this it's is ab- <laughs> absolutely provable. The idea provable. would be, the idea would be, we would if we say we had two hundred fifty-six bits. Athol is suggesting we take thirty-two off the top. Right. So we have to we have to take them from somewhere. Right. So we 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 pull thirty-two well, down didn't. from the t- even if you didn't, it would be the question is would it be better to use any additional thirty-two bits? For a timestamp yep. or randomness? Random is the answer. It's always going to be random is better. Always. Yes. Always. Absolutely always. <laughs> I love that. And we still don't get it. But, Steve, there could be a collision. Okay. The only, the only time it would not be better is if we considered all collisions of all keys generated in 130 ah, years. The birthday because problem. Because the, then we would have used all 32 <laughs> bits 
for the generation of active keys. So if we, but we'd have to, but it would take 130 years in order to use all 32 bits, and then, then looking at all the collisions of all the keys in 130 years would be the same as if it right. was random from the from the beginning. But the so likelihood clearly, of you having a collision is still yes. Clearly better if they if we're using all the bits that. all the time. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. J that's math. What a concept. <laughs> Jason in Winnipeg. He wonders about a squirrel entropy interception possibility. Steve, on the most recent episode, one five I'm sorry, four five six of security now you mentioned there's no way for an attacker to intercept or modify any instruction that your program executes in its own process space. In particular, the RD RAND instruction. Are you sure about that, Mr. Gibson? If we're already supposing that an attacker has the means to intercept calls between the process and the OS, then we necessarily assume the attacker has root privileges on the machine. That means they are also able to insert their own kernel modules into the system. While the RD RAND instruction only returns random numbers to registers, well, of course, it's impossible for a programmer to predict when the OS scheduler decides that the CPU time is up and gives another process a chance to run. During that time, all of the general purpose registers, which is where the RD RAND stores its return value, get swapped out of registers and stored into kernel memory. Therefore, couldn't a hostile kernel module be constantly scanning kernel memory for Squirrel's process control block and intercept or modify the value return? This is a determined attacker. Or in, and intercept yeah. or modify the return value returned from RD random by changing the same contents of the register. That said, if the above is possible, then the rogue kernel module could also modify the final output of the SHA, SHA-512 hash or even Squirrel's code itself. It seems insane to talk about security in the context of an attacker having root access to your machine, but isn't that required in order for an attacker to be able to intercept any of Squirrel's OS calls in the first place? So this was a great question, and it reflects something that I didn't express expressly address last week, and that is that it's useful to do the best job we can while recognizing that, bottom line, we're software running in a computer. And we're only as secure as the boundaries and limitations that, that the hosting operating system provides. Now, if you assume that an attacker has full root admin privileges, which, you know, there are many attacks which are effective that don't have that. So, for example, the famous, uh, uh, you know, return-based attacks where you jump into kernel code to get some instructions executed in kernel space and then, and then return to you, ROP, return-oriented programming it's called. Um, that's a, that's a so, sort of a limited case. It's the, it is true that if an attacker had complete root privilege, then, for example, they could set a hardware breakpoint because the Intel architecture and, in fact, all modern chip architectures support hardware breakpoints to allow uh, debugging. You could insert a hardware execution breakpoint after the read rand instruction in order to obtain its data or as he points out stick it after the sha512 hash 
or the point is, if you have that level of access, then what we're trying to do is impossible. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to have secure software where an attacker has absolute control over the program. And it's not possible. Good luck. You know, that's that's why we have so-called HSMs, hardware security modules. It's why one of the modes for using Squirrel is to use a, a cell phone where which, you know, unfortunately, that's also a likely victim. There are people in the news group who have who have who have considered and I'm not sure where they are on this. They may be well along uh, building a little squirrel authenticator, which is just a, a standalone piece of hardware with with the squirrel crypto technology in it, which is not infectable because it's not you know, wired into a common operating system platform and wireless everything. So that that's sort of where you have to go if you want absolute security in the face of an absolutely capable attacker. So recognize that, you know, I'm able to make something freely downloadable, which is just software, which is going to be very secure, but but it's going to it certainly assumes some integrity of a security perimeter around your programs on the other hand everything we do does you know when we enter our credit card number into the the form on a browser we're making that assumption that's that nothing is there in our computer watching our credit card unfortunately sometimes there is a keystroke logger that is doing that squirrel is better in that it doesn't give keystroke loggers anything to get and What's also interesting is that in the very, very, very worst case, and that's one thing that Squirrel handles, if an attacker got everything, absolutely everything you have, there is this this other notion of what Squirrel keeps offline, which is the rescue code, which allows you to take back a stolen identity from an attacker. So, and that's because it's offline, it's not available in the software to be uh, attacked. So we actually even have that covered as well. That's reassuring. I like that. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I think but sometimes it, it people take TNO a little too far. Well, it's, yeah, there are limitations because we're operating in a, in a, in a operating system with a lot of things going on. And, you know, the... The benefit is this can all be free. The, the liability is that it's not as safe as if it were hardware. And the good news is Squirrel does provide a, a backup of last resort with the so-called rescue code that allows you to, if your identity got stolen, to, to foreclose that and take your identity back. That seems more than adequate to me. Oh yeah, that's yeah. why I'm taking all the time to do this. I li- actually like I like that. It's Google does that. You know, you can. You, it's very important that you give them a phone number so that if it, mm-hmm. all else fails, you can have a reset sent to that phone number. Unless the attacker has everything, including your phone, uh, you could take it back. You say, "No, I'm changing the password. Whoever got this and changed yep. it, I'm going to change it back." Ken yep. Clark, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia notes: eBay has reduced password security. In response to its data breach, Steve, I know you mentioned the data breach at eBay. What you may not know is one of their responses is to force users to use 
shorter passwords. We talked a little bit about this. Yes, I said shorter. In my case, a lot shorter. Their system for a decade or so, at least for the decade I've been a member, has uh, supported a password length of up to 64 characters. However, after receiving an email announcing the breach and asking me to change my password, I went to the site, typed in the URL, not clicking a link, and was forced to, which, by the way, they do provide you a link in the email. Bad idea. And was forced to change it to a maximum length of 20 characters, even though the HTML for the input field supported the full 64 characters. It uses the attribute max length equals 64. The response to my attempt at entering a longer password was, and I quote, quote, your password cannot be longer than 20 characters. Man, if ever we needed squirrel, it's now. Keep up the great work. P.S. Calomel gives eBay's SSL certificate a failing grade as well. I'm slowly reaching the conclusion that I don't want to leave important information in online databases anymore, even when large entities such as this don't understand basic security. Of course, eBay owns PayPal, which makes us even more concerning. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we discussed this before, as, as you said. Uh, this is this was the post I knew I was sort of stepping on it um, because, you know, for whatever reason, eBay made this decision. I is think there any technical probably, is, is, is it possible that doing this made it more secure in some way that I can't possibly understand? I, I own the only thing I could think is that it's a technical support issue or someone just made an arbitrary decision ah 20 characters enough we were used to support 64 back when the geeks were running why would you go backwards that's what i don't get yeah and and it's funny too because they're even their input field as as he mentions still says max length equals 64 so the html form that you submit it will send it all to ebay then ebay looks at it and says whoa okay no too much yeah weird yeah, but but my point was, they do support upper lowercase special characters, and you know just absolute gibberish. And twenty characters of a ninety-six character character set is uh, is a, a huge amount of entropy. I mean, you can you know drop it into the password haystack and see how many combinations there are. That's really all the security you need. I mean, they will get their database hacked again before <laughs> before anyone breaks one of those. Yeah. Wow. So that's good to know. In fact, you should be more worried when they say no special characters than when they have an arbitrarily short limit. True. Unless if, the limit's you, eight. You, you, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird, too. I think their lower limit, is it eight or six? Oh, I, I don't for know. For some reason, six I think I saw right. someone's... Say, yeah. said six it's like yeah. whoa that That's is a little low. short i mean yeah. if you want to do anything bring that up to you know right. 10 right. but then it's like oh my favorite password is only i can't use nine. monkey yeah monkey right. <laughs> i want to use monkey six huh michael waddy waddell in chicago illinois proposes a way in which shubhams is that how i pronounce it shubham shubham shubham's yeah, two, from last week shubham's two-factor bypass is a practical attack. Oh, that's the one we were talking about last week, yeah. Yeah. Uh, during episode 456, you discussed Shubham Shah's uh, two-factor bypass. It was dismissed as impractical because you'd need to already have the password in order to use this attack. Now, here's why I can see this being exploited on a larger scale, because of the way that most sites implement two-factor authentication. For every site I've used two-factor with, if you enter an invalid password, you get an error message. But if you enter a valid password... Then you get the second factor prompt. Yeah, that's right. 
This effectively gives an attacker feedback on whether or not they've successfully guessed the victim's password. If the victim's using a simple password because they feel that two factors protecting them, their password could be compromised by a dictionary attack. A botnet could be used to brute force a large number of accounts, then send back the username and password for any accounts that op- offer up the second factor prompt. Hackers could then do reconnaissance to obtain the cell phone numbers of those targeted accounts in order to use Shubham's attack. I could see this being effective because of the user belief that two-factor allows them to use a weaker password hmm, than they would use That's if they good, didn't have... Yeah, yeah it's a good, good point. point. Yeah. A simple fax fix for this would be to request a second factor regardless of whether the password is correct in order to eliminate the feedback that the attacker gets from the current implementation of two-factor. you know why they don't? Why? It would create a huge denial of service attack. Oh yeah, what that what that would mean? Oh yeah, is you're that, right. Yep. Holy is cow! Is all you? Uh huh. <laughs> Just enter wrong passwords in mass quantities. Oh, yes. what a mess! Yes, it would just be a catastrophe. <laughs> a catastrophe. So I mean, so it's he, so it's a good he's point. Absolutely right, huh? It's a very good yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely right that this does provide some feedback and and we've often talked about how like you know you should never say oh your username is wrong or your password is wrong you should absolutely wait until you have both and then say something is wrong right but don't give the attacker you know give the attacker as little information as possible so they don't know how to navigate but but exactly as we said if the two-factor authentication was triggered with every submission, oh my God, it would just be, be the end of the world. Imagine the number of text messages going out of the network. Hey, is this? Could it be? Right. It is the last one, man. Steve, you're good. Steve Ria, it's a team Ro- effort. Yes, it's a it is. It's team a effort. Team effort. Steve Ria, Rochester, New York, wonders about life after Spinrite. Yep. Long-time listener, love the show. Blah blah blah. Hear the glowing testimonials about Spinrite saving somebody's files, but. Should you, oh, and you know, I get this a lot, and I'm yeah. glad that he asked. Should you trust a drive that has had failure that Spinrite's fixed? I would think that would be an indicator to, you know, get a new drive as soon as possible. If Spinrite keeps fixing problems, I would think you would want to stop using the drive. Any thoughts? Anxiously awaiting the Mac-compatible version of Spinrite. I'm a few months behind in the podcast, but I'll keep listening. Damn you, Leo, for having too many good shows to listen to. That's a problem I like having. So um, it is absolutely the case that there are failures of a drive to read sectors where there is nothing wrong with the drive. If, if when a drive is writing, you vibrate the drive or you give it a little tweak, like a, a you know, tap on it, a vibration, that will knock the head off track. Nothing wrong with the drive, nothing wrong with the sectors, but that those sectors and probably the adjacent group will now will no longer be readable because densities are so high, drives have become incredibly sensitive to vibration. Um, I remember talking a couple of years ago about someone who noticed well in fact, remember the guy who was shouting at his drives yeah. he was shouting at his server. And like the the bandwidth of the server dropped when he was shouting at it because the drives were having to do retries in order to go back and try to to get data that was even uncorrectable the the the, the first time. 
if that happens when you're writing, you will write off track and wipe out the neighborhood. Spinrite can come along and fix that kind of problem. But the, but never is there a problem with the drive. It's just it's just the environment. It's it's the nature of the technology. That said, we have we talked about this Lenovo lap, laptop at the top of the show uh, where Spinrite recovered over 50 sectors. You know, when I hear that and they're like finally it wouldn't boot. And I think, wow, you know, if they had just run Spinrite a week before, like run Spinrite after you do the backup. They were backing it up, but they weren't running Spinrite. Spinrite would have fixed those latent problems before they became crucial. And essentially by, you know, rewriting the data on the tracks where it's supposed to be and and prevent this from becoming a problem. So in a laptop, you know, laptops get all kinds of abuse. There may have been like physical head crashes because the, the heads are very close to the platter. People tend to bounce their laptops around while the drives are still spinning. There you're causing some mechanical problems. So my point is there isn't a, sing, a single pat answer to this question. The best thing to do is watch the smart screen. There's normally three or four, depending on how many parameters the drive publishes. Uh, graph bars, or also called bar graphs, um, uh, graphical <laughs> graphical bars on 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 the screen. And so people have just in the last week been tweeting me pictures of theirs where the 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 cyan color is pushed down and there's red dots showing and that's not good that's the drive itself saying while i am being exercised by spinrite i'm reducing my own health readings which i'm sending out to the world so that's an indication ooh you know this drive is telling you it's it's having trouble meeting Spinrite's demands. And it's because Spinrite is putting the drive under load that then during that period of time, the smart parameters matter. They really don't mean much if the drive isn't doing much work because they sort of tend to be self-healing and, and recovering. They'll, they'll sort of creep back up if there was if it was doing something. Spinrite is able to to see it and display it. Anyway, there isn't a simple answer. Non-critical problems can occur, spin right, which spin right can fix, and the drive is as good to use afterwards as it was before, or they can certainly be more uh, of a concern. I would say maybe lower your trust in the drive a little bit if spin right seems to be coming to his rescue all the time uh, and back up more often. Steve, we have come to the end of a fabulous program. Uh... Really interesting stuff with Brett Glass at the beginning. I'm glad we could do 10 yep. questions. The news, I don't know how you do it. Some free advertising. <laughs> you you understand that be, just because they use, we don't do what we call what's called cost per acquisition ads, where uh, the, uh, a lot of times, you know, people assume, oh, well, every time you mention this offer code, Twit gets a buck. No, we don't do that kind of ads. So just because ah. you, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought you might have thought that. There's no revenue at all in somebody using your offer code. There's goodwill. And, I love that. And are they an ongoing advertiser with the network? Yeah. Okay, but just not with my podcast. Well, they come and go. 
uh, as all. Okay. Nobody stay, nobody's always on any particular show. Right. Uh, right. The Goodwill is great. You love it. I don't have any problem with you recommending it. I just want you to understand that there's no right. revenue at all in your recommending it or giving an offer code. It's good for you, and it's, you know, I'm sure Harry's loves it. <laughs> but and Well, I figured that the offer code allowed them to track where the sales was coming from. But that so doesn't make... Yeah. So, so it would incent <laughs> them to buy more advertising. Or... Disincent them because why should they? They're getting oh, they've already yeah, they've they already got what they got what they would get in the ad. In fact, they, it's better than an ad. They got me hooked. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, we love you uh, and we want to hear your recommendations. So that's not nobody's going to say don't say what you like. Right. I, I you I, I it's just I think people sometimes think and I know many of our audience thinks that if you use an offer code that makes us a buck or something and you know some for some many shows most shows probably most podcast networks that's the case but we don't do that kind of deal cuz i i feel like it devalues the network so uh good to know you pay, they pay for an ad they pay to get the the you know impressions yep and absolutely if you're going to go to Harry's use the offer code security now the, my only concern is i don't know if it's you know it comes and goes and I, we try to this is the other thing we try to encourage our advertisers to keep all offer codes good my galore, because look, I mean, people will be listening to this a month from now. Well, but that's the go, problem. They don't. Yeah. So in their tracking, I don't know why, but many advertisers expire offer codes. That's more often the case than not. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, shouldn't, right? Exactly. Why don't you want the business? I think every advertiser should keep all offer codes going. Yeah. But because, uh, I mean, what is, you know, what's the problem? Don't you want the business? Yeah. But uh, that's not, sometimes they don't think that way. Mm. It's a very complicated thing. <laughs> and you you love Harry's. We love you for it. Harry's really loves you for it. Expect many blades in the mail. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if they know. I really don't. Yeah. You know, they'll probably yeah. say, well, we're getting a lot of offer codes from security now, but <laughs> we we don't know. Well, our listeners know, and for what it's worth, That's it's what been matters. a hit. That's so. We're yes, here we're, we're, we're to get you value. a good shave. That's what we care That's about. Right. Not, not going to give you a clean stuff. shave, baby. That revenue, those 25 employees, that revenue stuff, that's nothing. I'm just going to have Brett Glass send me money from now on. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> but, but, but I need the money, Brett. I can't do business unless... Internet service yeah, providers really, pay me. I was, I was really glad we had the discussion. I thought that was very useful. Oh, it was great. And... It really underscores to, it really ex, it how explains also is. that like the issue is where's the money going to come from, and it's very do we keep it as like a, a free breakfast for the the end user or right. you know or what? So, and I really think, I mean, it's going to be a tough road to hoe, but the model of the electric utility seems really to fit best, which is your build, you know, by your you usage. Use. And if you just suck down every Netflix show ever, well, there's a cost. To, there's a cost to doing that. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Uh, and that boy, doesn't impact net neutrality. That that means no, no, you pay exactly. for what you use. Exactly. I do have to think that most internet service providers make money. He is in a very expensive kind of internet service provider. Well, and I did he's, I, how he's I, doing it. I, I I stiffened a little bit when he mentioned that like. You know, downloading movies was very profitable. It's like, well, wait, well, 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 hold on, that shouldn't matter. Right. I mean, it's it's not. Bits or bits. It's not about bits is bits. Right. right. Um. 
so, yeah, and so Brett is in a tough situation because he he is providing what is actually a very expensive service to his customers, and yes. apparently he can't yeah. charge them what it's worth. And I thought it was really interesting that two hundred one, their right. first question is, "Can we get Netflix?" Right. You know, and it's like oh, I understand oh. that, but you're a wireless internet service provider. You're you're buying expensive bandwidth to begin with in the boonies. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's on water towers right. aiming microwave dishes. So he's not exactly oh. a typical situation. I, I think Comcast makes plenty of money off their internet service. Right. We're not worried about. Them, I think they're I'm... going bankrupt. I think they'd like to make more. I know that. Oh, it wouldn't everybody? We do yeah. this shit. Wouldn't everybody? I'd like to make more. We'd all like to yeah. make more. Uh, this show is brought to you uh, every uh, Tuesday, right after Mac Break Weekly, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000 are UTC. We being, are we being affected by uh, we are not. the Good news. Apple event? The Apple event's on a Monday. Okay. So uh, there will be a different show ahead of time, uh, ahead of you next next Tuesday, but it, you'll ah, be on because you're moving, you're moving to Mac We're Break moving over to Mac Monday. Break to Monday. Yeah. Right. I think okay. iPad today will lead into you next week. Uh, join us uh, live. It's great to have you. And uh, the conversation in the chat room is always fun and exciting. Uh, but if you can't be here live, we have on demand for you in many ways. Soon to be BitTorrent Sync. Actually, when we started, you know, I don't know if I did it with this show, but certainly when Twitch started, we used BitTorrent. Because ha- we, c- we couldn't afford to- the bandwidth, so we used BitTorrent. Ah. Another thing that was basically cut off by broadband providers who didn't, <laughs> didn't like that idea. <laughs> yeah yeah um we do this uh oh yeah and then you can get on demand versions that's what i was about to say steve has really an interesting plan there if you've got the bandwidth if you're on the wisp and you don't want to pay for a lot of bits steve's got 16 kilobit audio and transcriptions which is as small as you can get of the show but we also have for those of you who are living fat and happy on the big 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 pipe <laughs> on the big pipe <laughs> we got the full full bandwidth audio and video at twit.tv slash sn. If you go to grc.com to get your copy, don't forget to visit the uh, feedback form. That's uh, grc.com slash feedback for our future yep. question and answer episodes. Get yourself a copy of SpinWrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. And uh, also all the freebies and the uh, all the, there's so much stuff on your site now. It's really a fun read. Just browse around. grc.com. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo.